Father, you are good. We are not. You are faithful. We are not. You are holy. We are not. And yet in your Son, we are declared holy. We are declared right, but only by his grace. And Father, if anything good is to come out of our lives, it's but by the grace of God including this morning. I pray that I would get out of the way. I pray that we would get out of the way and give you a clear avenue to speak to us through the word of God. Your your word returns void because it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Not any of us, not our ability to speak eloquently, but it's your power. So God, may your power shine this morning. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So, Grandpa Solomon just got up from his afternoon nap, and he is ready to drop some more wisdom on us. And if you're like, what in the world are you talking about? Um, that means you weren't here last Sunday. Shame on you. Um, we, uh, we, in, we actually, you can go back and listen to it on the podcast, except for we actually got the first few minutes. They were, they were missed. Uh, Jeannie said she made a mistake. She forgot to record it. I think she was actually back there going, what is he saying? Grandpa Solomon slapping children, talking about communists, delete, right? We'll just edit that part out. Well, sorry, Jeannie, I went back and I actually re-recorded the intro and spliced it back together. So it's back. I felt like one of those Best Buy guys. I was so impressed with myself and the, tech, and the, the technology that I was able to pull together. So that is available on the iTunes, Peninsula Grace Sermons, or on our website, peninsulagrace.org. Free plug. We said... Solomon in chapter 7 is he's giving us this advice. He's kind of like a, an old man. He is an old man at the end of his life, and he's been telling us all about this life and how meaningless it is. And we said in chapter 7, it's sort of like sitting down to coffee with our grandpa, okay? But not the nice grandpa, not the kind, I want to hug you and, and pinch your cheek grandpa. He's that surly, kind of curmudgeonly uh, grandpa um, that says everything, kid, is meaningless. And while he's been napping, we've been kind of looking at the walls in Grandpa's house. He's got the newspaper clippings up all over the walls, all his conspiracy theories, the JFK assassination and Watergate. And of course, Grandpa blames it all on those commies, right? And that's kind of the way he rolls. And he comes back in and he sits down after his nap and he shoves that coffee back in front of us and he's warmed it up for us. And this time we dare not ask for creamer, right? And he tells us, he goes, I got some things I want to tell you. In the meantime, Grandma's in the kitchen yelling at him to take his doTERRA for the day, and he winks at you and completely ignores her. Um, and he says, I was, where was I? He says, oh, that's right. Last week I was telling you that sometimes the bad is good. Sometimes the bad is good. In our lives, the funerals, the sorrow, the, the criticism from a good friend. He says those things are actually necessary instead of just numbing ourselves with the frivolity and the entertainment and the comfort in this world. He says, boy, you got to face the music because this is reality. And just numbing ourselves to reality doesn't make reality disappear. And he says, now I want to tell you a little bit about how good can actually be bad. In some ways in our lives, the things that we might say are good can actually be bad bad. And so in verse 15, we're going to finish this, this uh, chapter 7 here. He says in verse 15, in this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. 
I want to talk to you for a second about karma. We'll let, we'll let that sink in. There you go. You got it. At the center of all religion, there is this idea of karma, whether it be the Kool-Aid drinking cults on the fringe or the kind of central religions of, of Islam, of Mormonism. And it's not just Buddhism. Sadly, the idea of karma has even crept into our evangelical thinking as well. And karma is the idea, simply put, that what, what goes around comes around, okay? Eventually, what goes around comes around. So when you do bad things, eventually bad things happen to you. And when you do good things, eventually good things happen to you. And, and so we're going to see this in all religions, except for Christianity. Um, really, this, this, their, whole, their whole concept is built around karma, um, if you follow their religious rules, you get good things, right? You get heaven. Um, if you're a Muslim, you get 72 virgins. Solomon rolls his eyes, 72, please. If you're, you know, if, if you're into uh, Mormonism, you're going to become a god, and you're going to be able to populate your own planet. Um, if you're into reincarnation, you get to come back as something better, a, a, a rock star or a, a king or something. But then if, if you don't follow the rules, bad things happen. You do bad things to other people, God does bad things to you, right? You get hell, you get punishment, you don't get those virgins. You come back in life as somebody terrible, maybe a Kardashian, I don't know. Sorry, that's, that was, that was mean-spirited. But if a Christian was asked, do you believe in karma, what would we say? Of course not, right? Get that voodoo stuff out of here. We believe in the Bible, right? You Eastern mystic weirdo. We believe in the Bible and not even the message, real translations, the Bible. But if you listen to us talk, don't we incorporate karma language into our vocabulary all the time? I mean, for example, if something bad happens to someone we would deem evil or wicked, we say what? They got what was coming to them, right? You mess with the bull, you get the horns, brother, right? If you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. You had it coming to you. Or we say with the good person who we deem innocent or, 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 or undeserving of bad, something evil happens to them. We go, man, out of all the miscreants in the world, why would bad happen to her? She's such a decent human being. Isn't that karma? The bad things shouldn't happen to the good people. The bad things should happen to the bad people. And Solomon's point in verse 15, he goes, listen, if karma is supposed to be the modus operandi, if this is supposed to be how things work, God didn't get the memo. Because the New Living, he says, I've seen everything in this meaningless life, including the death of good young people and the long life of wicked people. And Grandpa Solomon says, in my time, I've seen the good die young and the evil die old. And if it was a 2016, Solomon would say, look, karma is bunk because I've watched the news. And it's not how life works. We talked about last week, Ingrid Williams, this, this amazing Christian mother of five, gets senselessly killed by a foolish driver. And yet there are misers and murderers who are, who are getting off scot-free and celebrating their 100th birthday. Solomon says, life's not how life works. And then in the next, next verse here, you're gonna, you're gonna, some of you are going to be pumped when you first read this and you hear this because until you actually explain, until I explain to you what Solomon's saying. He says, do not be over-righteous, 
Neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? Or the New Living says, don't be too good or too wise. And some of you are like, all right, finally, something that Justin's preaching that I'm already doing. Like, I've got a corner on not being too good, right? And no one has ever claimed that I'm too wise. And what he makes it sound like here is be good, but not too good, right? Wear the Christian t-shirt, but underneath of your sweatshirt, right? Go to church, but only cuss in the car, okay? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, we can, we can be good middle-of-the-road Christians who, yeah, we go to church on Sunday, but, you know, not on Wednesday nights. We don't get too carried away with this, right? And just kind of find that balance of not being too good and not too bad. But remember what Solomon just said. He said, sometimes the good die young despite their being good. And in the context here, what he's saying is don't depend on your righteousness. Do not depend on your wisdom to incur the blessings of God. This is not karma. And he says, why destroy yourself? This is probably better translated, why be appalled or why be shocked? Because if you're, if you're basing God's blessing on you with your own ability to be good, you are going to have rug burn on your jaw because that is not the way that this world operates. And this word here, overly righteous, it's a reflexive verb. And what that means, for those of you that went to public school, um, kidding, I'm kidding. A reflexive verb is a verb that its object is the same as its subject. So like if you are hitting yourself, right? That is a reflexive verb. You're hitting yourself. And so what he's saying here is this is a righteousness that comes from yourself. It is a being good or a being right that originates from you. And Solomon says that's the kind of good that is actually bad. Now scripture shows, um, talks about self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a hard one to preach on because everyone who needs me to to preach to them about self-righteousness is thinking about somebody else who needs to be preached to about self-righteousness, right? So if I say, let's talk about self-righteousness, you go, yes, let's, because Stacy needs to hear all about it, right? And scripture shows that a major aspect of self-righteousness comes when we compare ourselves with others instead of with God, We compare ourselves with others instead of God. And this is how many people get themselves to sleep at night and and don't fear losing their soul is because what we do is we look at these sort of large-scale evils in the world, these kind of cataclysmic wrongs, and we go, well, I'm not that. Like, I've never killed anybody, right? I've never stolen, you know, large amounts of money. I've never walked into a school with a gun. I've never blown stuff up. Or maybe we just look around our neighborhood and we go, oh, or, or even in this very room, and we go, well, I'm better than him. I'm better than her. But Jesus had a pretty monumental problem defining righteousness in this way. And you remember the, the parable in Luke 18. Um, I'm going to kind of give you a remixed version here. Uh, Matt Chandler kind of helped me out with this. Um, but if you check the original count, the heart is still the same. We'll pick on, let's pick on George some more. So make sure he's not nodding off. Let's, let's say that uh, say this George is this kind of steroid-induced super-Christian, right? And he comes to church every Sunday, and he sits in the front row, right? And he's got the WWJD bracelets all the way up to his elbows, right? Covered in ichthus tattoos and the cross tat washable, of course. And he comes in with his KJV Bible, because that's how God spoke, 
extra large print edition. The Bible's so big, he's got to carry it on these wheels, right? And he comes to the front row, sits in front of everybody. And he's got his giant journal that he kind of opens up. And he's got this giant pencil, but it has I Heart Jesus running down the sign. It's one of those jumbo pencils you used to be able to buy at Etc. by Sue with the tassels. And he sits there in his journal, and as I'm preaching, he's just like, mmm, mm-hmm, amen. And he doesn't even have to open up his Bible because he has this portion of Scripture memorized as well. (laughs) So he's loving the service, but the room gets sort of awkward because in the back, there's this person sobbing. And maybe it's Francie, I don't know. And super Christian and the gang, they can't concentrate because this guy's making all this noise and we're going, where are the elders, right? Like, they need to bounce this guy out of here because Weepy Pants is making noise in the back and we can't concentrate. And at the end of the service, I give this this kind of time for response and this prayer. And so super Christian George, he stands up and and he says this prayer in front of everybody. He says, Father... Jehovah, Elohim, Yahweh, thank you, thank you, thank you that I am not like this man in the back who clearly has issues. I thank you that I have not done the things he has done. I have not sinned in the ways that he has sinned. I do not have regrets like he obviously has. I thank you that I am not like him. But in the meantime, the guy in the back can't even hear George. He didn't even know he was praying because he's too busy sobbing. Father, forgive me, for I am a wicked man. And then Jesus asks at the end of the parable, he goes, okay, which one's the one that goes home justified? Which one's the one that goes home right with God? I'm sorry, George, it's not you. And Solomon says, there is a rightness that is wrong. And we cannot bank on our own ability to be good, to get the wealth and health and happiness from God, or to save our own souls. It's not coming from us. And then in verse 17, Solomon goes on. He says, on the other hand, don't be too wicked either. Don't be a fool. Why die before your time? So he says, look, don't be self-righteous. Don't go over the top thinking your own righteousness will save you. But the other extreme... We go, well, if I can't be good enough, then I'll just do whatever I want. He goes, no, there's a judgment coming for you as well. So that's not the answer either. And so here's Solomon's solution, verse 18. He goes, pay attention to these extremes. For anyone who fears God will what? Will avoid both extremes. If we want to avoid the pit of self-righteousness and of total destruction in our own wickedness, It starts with a correct view of God. And he says in verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. He goes, he who has this kind of wisdom, who understands God correctly and stands in reverent awe of him, he says he is wiser than 10 presidents. Right? Who would have thought the scales would have tipped that way? And what he's saying here, he he said the same thing in Proverbs when he said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
And so if we are going to have any sort of wisdom, it has to start from a correct understanding and then a consequential fear and reverence and awe of who God is. And if we don't have God in the right place, the only thing left for us is foolishness and sin. But the problem is, the problem is, Romans 3 says they have no fear of God at all. They do not have the fear of God before their eyes. He's quoting Psalm 36. There is no one who correctly fears the Lord, who correctly has an understanding of who he is and lives in light of that. And then Solomon goes on, he goes deeper, and he just levels the playing field here. He says in verse 20, Indeed, and speaking of Romans 3, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Because that person doesn't exist. And then Solomon says, listen, I can't, I can't rely on my own goodness, and I can't rely on my own wisdom. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? He says, all of this simply shows me how unwise I am. Who's saying this? the wisest man who ever lived, according to the Bible. So if Solomon's wisdom isn't enough, where do we stand? And then he says, I can't rely on my righteousness, I can't rely on my wisdom, and nor can any of you. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Okay, time out. (laughs) Solomon here is not, despite appearances, being a chauvinist pig, okay? Um, It looks like that, but we need to unpack this for a second so I don't have a line of people after church. Um, He's using this, this Hebrew trick, um, it's, a po- it's a poetry, it's a poetic device called parallelism, and we'll often see this, and what happens is the second line out of the two is the climax or the point. He says in Proverbs, you know, three things, um, three things are beyond me, four that I cannot fathom. So it's not like he lost track, there's three, no, there's actually four, he's building up to it, and the point is there are four things that I don't understand, and then he explains the four. So what he's saying here when he says there is one upright man, the word man is the Hebrew for Adam, okay, you probably have heard that before, um, and that includes, the word Adam is the, kind of the word for mankind, it includes both male and female, And so what he's saying here, he goes, look, one out of a thousand, actually none. He goes, to look around and find somebody with the right standing before God, they are scarce, they are actually non-existent. That's the point that Solomon's making. And we know that because you go back to verse 20 and he goes, there's no one who's righteous. No man or woman, okay? He's not saying things that would get me in trouble. Verse 29, he says, this only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. God is not the author of evil. We have gone astray. And so Grandpa Solomon, once again, he's left us in this sort of depressing place. He says, you can't be good enough. You can't be wise enough. And so I think it's probably time for Grandpa to go take a nap again. Um, and at this point, I mean, you, can't, you get to this place in the scripture and, and you can't help but go to the gospel. 
you just, you cannot help but go to the gospel. And what happens here, you see in the Old Testament, the Old Testament asks the questions. The New Testament answers them. The Old Testament asks the questions and the New Testament answers them. So here in the Old Testament, Solomon is saying, no one's wise enough, no one's good enough. Is there hope for anyone? Is, is there any hope for us beyond this karmic understanding that if I do good, God will do good to me, and if I do bad, God will do bad to me? And the New Testament is where we find the answer to that question. Because if we're honest, deep in the recesses of our hearts, we know that karma is not working for us. It's like this noisy clanking in our souls, and we try to do good, and we try to avoid bad, right? And we want to we do the right thing, and yet we find when we try to do that, it's, it's, the, it's Romans 7 all over again. The good things I want to do, I can't do, and the bad things I want to avoid, those are the exact same things I'm doing. And this noise is just keeps going in our minds, in our hearts, and we can't be still, and we can't find rest. And in the middle of the noise... Love interrupts. Love interrupts. And this voice says, what you could not do, God did. What you could not do, God did. Let's go to Romans 8. It says, there is, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to have to break that, that, that we, we translate that word in, in English, the word no there, no condemnation. You want to know what it is in the Greek? It's no, okay? It's the exact same word. When he says there is no condemnation, he means there is no condemnation. There is none, zero condemnation, zero guilt, zero punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says there is something in Jesus, for those who are in Jesus, that removes the law of karma from our lives. See, you and I are very, very worthy of condemnation. Because we are not good. And even our attempts at being righteous, just like super-Christians' righteousness, they're not acceptable. Because when we try to do right things, they're coming from the place of a sinner. And as a sinner, all we can do is sin. And so that's why even when we do something that, that can look good to someone else, we know the, the false, selfish motives that are attached to it. That's why Isaiah said, even your righteous deeds are filthy rags in his sight. There's nothing that we can do that is good and acceptable and pleasing to God on our own. And so what that means is that what should go around our sin should come around our comeuppance, right? We deserve nothing but what the law promises for disobedience. But somehow in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, which means we don't get what we deserve. Praise God. And what that means is whatever skeletons or boneyard are in your closet, are in your past, we are, you are not guilty for. And, and listen to me, God does not accept a future cleaned up version of you. Like once you get your act together, then you can come to me. He says, I accept you now, just as you are now. 
And what this means is security for us. That God, that Jesus didn't stumble into us and go, oh, wow. Like, I didn't see this guy coming. Like, I, I thought the cross was a good idea, but I didn't know that there was somebody who was this bad. You, you're out. No condemnation, no matter the depths of your wickedness and rebellion. And he says, here's why. Because through Jesus, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So there's this new law that's working in us. You see, the old law was sin and death. It was basically karma. He says, you sinned and you died. You got what you deserved. But, but this new law, there is this new law, and associated with this new law is life and peace. That is a much better law. I'm going to take the second of the two. So how do we get that? What do we do to operate under this new law of life and peace? And here's the best part. We do nothing. We do nothing. Verse 3, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. We could never attain to God's holy standard. Nothing wrong with the law. The problem was us. We couldn't do good because we're sinners, and sinners can only sin. He says, so God did what the law could not do, what we could not do to please God. God did it. How did he do it? He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So who did it? God did. What we couldn't do because there was nothing good in us, God did. And how did he do it? He sent Jesus to pay the bill. In the middle of the noise of karma, love interrupts and Jesus comes in the likeness of human flesh and he pays the bill for every sin, past, present, and future. And this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion on earth. It's not getting what we deserved, karma. It's getting the exact opposite of what we deserve and that's grace. And we get... In return for our own wickedness, we get his kindness, we get peace, we get total acceptance and a reconciliation with God instead of eternal damnation. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This is the deal that we've been given. And so here's where I want to end this morning. I want to ask you a couple questions, and I'd, I'd like you to close your eyes or, or stare at the floor or stare at me. I, I, whatever helps you focus, that's the point. And maybe, you know, maybe you need to write. For some people, kind of continuing to kind of journal as we're talking, that helps. Uh, that's, that's not my concern. But what I want is for you to answer these questions honestly. I don't want us to play church here. I don't want you just to quote the right verses to yourself because God knows what we really think, what we really believe. And what I want us to do is to discover how easily um, we can twist biblical Christianity into this kind of wonky form of karma, how easy it is to do that. So ask ourselves a couple of questions. Are you currently defining your version of rightness by what you do or don't do? In other words, if I walked up to you right now and I said, what makes you good? How would you answer that? honestly and bef before God what makes you right before him and the next question does God love you does God really love you and if 
So why? Why does he love you? Why do you bring God joy? Is it because of your performance? And then and finish this sentence. God is pleased with me because. God is pleased with me because. How do you fill in that blank? Because listen, how you finish that sentence, how you answer those questions, it determines if you're living in the grace of God or if you're going back to some biblically twisted karma-based law that depends on your performance. And when I was kind of examining my own heart in this at one point, I confessed to God, God, I finished that sentence and say, you're pleased with me because I impress you with my own success. And I'm doing these things and God looks and goes, whoa, that's amazing, Justin. I'll accept you. Or more to the point, you are terrible. Get out. And anything outside of God, you are pleased with me right now solely because you are pleased with your son. And he stands before you as my righteousness. He was good for me. He paid my wrong. And the only reason you accept me is because I'm with him. Any other answer puts us outside of the cross. And the only means of being truly acceptable to God and pleasing to him. And maybe you came in here today like that man in the back of the church who was sobbing because of some great sin in your past, some great sin that's going on right now, and and maybe that thing has left a scar on your soul that, that you don't think is ever going to heal, and you're ashamed of it, and you're hiding from God in it. And maybe this morning, for the first time, you've understood that there is no condemnation for you. There is no guilt in that. Not because you didn't do it. You very much did it, and you very much deserve punishment for it. But Jesus took the punishment for you. And God, in Jesus, accepts you based on his righteousness, not on your own. And maybe for the first time today, you've repented and clung to that cross. I want to say welcome to the family. Praise God, because his grace is sufficient for you. And maybe you came in here today like the super Christian up in the front row, and maybe you've got your 50-pound Bible and your I Heart Jesus pencil, and, and, and maybe you've been coming to church your whole life, and you didn't even realize that you were basing your acceptance before God on your performance, on this sort of karmic understanding that God will bless you and save you if you're good enough or at least better than the person you're sitting by. And maybe for the first time, You've understood the folly of your own self-righteousness. There's no condemnation for you either, brother or sister. And repent and cling to the cross because his grace is sufficient for you. And maybe you're here tonight and you say, I don't get it and I don't care. There is a judgment coming. His grace can be sufficient for you as well. And here's why. Here's why this is so important, guys. I will finish here. We were created to worship We were created to worship. Ephesians 1 says that you and I might be for the praise of his glory. Colossians 1, we were created by him and for him. It's the reason we were put on this planet to worship him. And you know how I know? Because I see the way that we worship. You know, when when Duke beat North Carolina a couple weeks ago, my brother and I are chest bumping and losing our collective minds, right? I'm, I'm worshiping. I'm excited. Last night, I, I don't know if I should admit this, but the Warriors and Thunder game was so amazing. I actually literally, I, I shouldn't say this, I took off my shirt and threw it across the room. I didn't know what to do. I was so excited. I didn't know how to react. No one else was there. You know, no, no one to stumble, right? Um, 
And maybe you're not a sports person. This is a, this is a picture of us after we won, after Duke won the national championship last year. I'm, I feel that I'm more excited than everybody else there. I probably forced them to take that picture. And maybe you're not a sports person. Maybe, you know, but you look at in concerts, it's the same thing. You see people, even when it's not, you know, a praise to Jesus, you see people with their hands in the air and they're clapping and their faces look just like it can often look in a worship service. It's because we were created to worship, but we were not created to worship Taylor Swift, right? We know that. We were not created to worship Duke. We were created to worship God. And our heart is only at home, our heart is only at rest when we're worshiping him. And that's why this idea, this performance-based karma is so devastating, because the more we ascribe to our own works, the less worship there is. And the less worship there is, the less peace and joy that we experience. And God is not held in his proper place. But when we repent and we believe that what we couldn't do, God did. God did. And we understand what Jesus did for us. There is more and more worship that overflows from our hearts. But when we look at our own ability to do good, God becomes unnecessary and there is no worship, which negates the reason we were created for in the first place. But what we could not do, God did. And his love endures past all of our sin, all of our failures, all of our doubts, all of our self-righteous attempts, and his kindness leads us to repentance, to just want to be near him. And that's why we sing, how great is our God. Not because he makes us wealthy and healthy. Let's look around. We sick and we broke, right? We sing, how great is our God, because Jesus paid the bill through the cross of Christ. And we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because what this wretch could not do, God did. Let's pray. Father, we simply come before you. Sinful creatures who rebelled, who went our own way, did our own thing. And if, and if we came before you based on this karmic idea of you blessing us for the good and, and punishing us for the bad, we would all be up that proverbial creek without a paddle. None of us stand a chance. The playing field is leveled. There is no one better than us, no one worse than us. We are all equally condemned before you in our flesh. But what our flesh could not do in keeping the law, your son did for us. And Lord, we're all over the map here in this room and our understanding and our belief in how we walk with Jesus. And some of us have been trying and pretending and some of us have been hiding in guilt and shame. Wherever we are in this room today, I pray that the power of God would reach in, that your kindness would lead us to repentance and that we would come back to you or for the first time come to you and lay it all at your feet and rejoice that there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. May we cling to the cross and know that we stand before you as your children, accepted in your sight because of what you did through your Son. And our only basis of acceptance before you is in Jesus. May we believe that, may we walk in that, and may our song be Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved wretches like us.